Welcome to the 3D world with OpenGL and Vulkan. Hello and welcome to episode number 9 of the OpenGL and Vulkan podcast. And today we've got a special show because we've got a guest on the show who will tell us about the render pipeline. But first of all, once more, I'd like to inform you that, of course, like all the other podcasts, I will accomplish this podcast on the website opengl2go.net. So you may just open it right away to have a few more information about what we are talking about today. Let's start and let me introduce you to our guest. Today we've got on the show Mr. Robert Menzel. Hello, Kai. Mr. Menzel will tell us about the OpenGL render pipeline. So what is happening there on the graphic card, what is happening in the driver. And um, yeah, but before we start, Mr. Menzel, please be so kind, introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you for the introduction. Well, as you said, my name is Rob Menzel and I work for the RWTH Aachen University. So I'm teaching computer graphics at that university and um, so basically I hope that I can tell you a little bit about the rendering pipeline. Okay, let's just jump in right away. Let's assume our application is pretty fine so far. We've got all our vertex data um, properly formatted and we have uh, probably set all the pointers to our data. We may have set already some uniforms. We've made all the state changes. And now we're at the point where we just need to say GL draw arrays. And that's the point where Mr. Mansell will start to explain to us what is happening there. Okay, so let's assume that we already have set up our program, our shaders, our state of OpenGL. We have our context and we have our window. So now we want to draw something. For example, we have a GL draw arrays call with, I don't know, 1000 triangles. And the first thing that we might notice is when we try to analyze our program, how fast anything renders is that this uh, call to OpenGL nearly instancy, instantly will get back to our program code. So it seems like our call doesn't need any time at all. And that's independent on whether we have 1000 triangles or a million triangles. So of course, um, the GPU didn't do any work by now. And what actually happens is that we have one thread that's probably in user space, which just gets our draw call and then hands this over to a second thread, which will then later on do all the heavy work. So our program can instantly return. That's maybe the first thing that we can learn that the time it takes to call OpenGL not necessarily tells us anything about how long this will take to actually render something on the GPU. So there will be a second thread, which later on will give our calls to the driver in the uh, kernel mode. But first of all, it will collect a couple of commands. And this might um, be the time where some heavy work is done that we didn't really um, believe uh, first that this might happen. So for example, the driver might have to recompile a shader. So I said our program is already set up, so we have compiled our shaders, we have linked our shaders. But during the execution, it might be needed and necessary that a shader will get recompiled because some states and some functions of the 
uh, pipeline are actually emulated inside of our shaders. So that's the one important part to keep in mind. And when we think about other graphics APIs, for example Vulkan, there we will get some state objects that actually encapsulate all of the states that might alter the shaders at one time. And we are told that we need to build those objects beforehand, not during the rendering, but at initialization time, so the programmer is more aware of what might be expensive at one time and what isn't expensive. That's maybe one interesting uh, difference between Vulkan and OpenGL later on. So I said that those commands are collected in big command buffers, and it might happen that even multiple frames of commands, complete frames filled with commands, are buffered in a driver before they even get passed on to the GPU. That means while I create OpenGL calls, the actual hardware might be busy rendering three frames before my actual calls are, are made. So there's a lot of latency involved here. And when we think about Vulkan again, there those command buffers will be exposed to us. So we get more direct interaction with, with these parts of the pipeline and we can influence the trade-off between uh, the rendering performance in terms of frames per second and the latency that we get, which is a very important topic for virtual reality. Now that one complete frame was buffered, this can now get passed on to the actual GPU. And the first step is to fetch the, the, the attributes of our vertices from the memory. That's something that we have set up before. And this is again something that is emulated in the vertex shader on some GPUs. So I know from Radeon GPUs that there's this fetching of data from the, the actual graphics card's memory from the buffers is emulated in the vertex shader. And now everything gets passed on to the vertex shader. And if you have a book about OpenGL and you have this rendering pipeline there, it pretty much looks like every vertex is transformed individually. So one vertex after the other. But in fact, each vertex shader cannot read or write data from another vertex shader call. And even our uniforms where all of our vertex shaders have access to is are only read-only. So it's very simple to parallelize that, to just shade many of our vertices together. And in fact, this is what happens in the hardware. For example, on the NVIDIA hardware, there are 32 threads will get executed in parallel in a SIMD machine. And this size of 32 is called a warp there. So what happens is that we have a SIMD machine which has just one instruction pointer and one logic that controls what instruction of our vertex shader is executed at a time, but this is executed on 32 vertices in parallel. And here we already see if that if we want to build our own Minecraft clone, for example, and we have a lot of cubes, and we program that by having a loop to go over all of our cubes and render each of our cube individually, and every cube would have just eight vertices that we would only use up 
eight of those 32 potentially sweats. So that's very inefficient. So here already we see that we want big draw cords with a lot of vertices. Even more when we think about what will happen if one of those sweats, or in fact all of those sweats, because they are executing the same ex uh, instruction, want to access memory. And memory access is quite slow. So whenever we want to read something from memory, maybe from a texture, we have to wait until this data actually got loaded up to our um, shader core. So the hardware got very clever here. And as soon as our pipeline will get stored by this, by waiting for memory, the hardware just loads up the next set of 32 threads into the shader processor to execute those until they most likely hit the same line of code to read from some textures. And maybe we are lucky and the first set of 32 threads has already gotten their data by now and can continue the execution of those threads. This works in a way a bit similar to this hyper-threading that we know from Intel CPUs where we can run two threads on one actual core. But we are a bit more limited here in the sense that those two sets of 32 threads have to run the same shader program. So now we have learned that we don't even need 32 vertices at the same time, but even more than that. And we don't execute two sets of 32 uh, threads, but even ma many, many more than that. And then at the end, you know that your graphics card doesn't have 32 cores in it, but maybe a couple of hundreds or even thousands of cores. So NVIDIA cores and CUDA cores, for example, this is those, one of those tiny instruction units that I'm talking about. That means if you have, let's say, two thousands of those shader cores, and you want to run in this hyper-threading kind of way uh, 10 sets of threads in parallel, that means that your render call better have at least 20,000 vertices in it to saturate the whole GPU. After we have done that, we get to the so-called primitive assembly where just two vertices which belong together are collected to be defined as one triangle again. And then we go to the rasterization of this, which creates our tiny pixels or let's say pixel candidates. Because what we create now might not end up on the frame buffer at all. Maybe we have some stencil tests which will destroy them in the end. Maybe we have a discard in our fragment shader. Maybe it gets overdrawn later on. So let's not call those pixels, but fragments. Also, potentially pixels. And then we go to the fragment shading. And the fragment shading pretty much works the same way as the vertex shading. So we also need big sets of uh, fragments to be shaded together. Because they're also um, processed in the same way in the same hardware. So 32 threads will work in parallel. But here we have one special case and that's mid mapping. So you know when we create textures and we get very far away from an object that has a texture, the whole texture of maybe 1024 by 1024 pixels will only be shown on the screen in an area of like 10 by 10 pixels. So what 
we can do is that we have a kind of a pyramid and restore our texture of 1024 squared also in a smaller version of 512 squared 256 squared and so on down to one by one pixel and now we need a clever way to determine that we actually should look up the 8x8 pixel version for our 10x10 pixel area. And how can we do that? Well, it would be easy if we know the texture coordinate from the fragment that gets shaded just, I say, white to us or down to us from the currently fragments that we are looking on. And if we would know that, we could calculate the difference between those and then we need how far away in the actual texture the next texture coordinate would uh, be. And then we can just choose that level of the mid mapping pyramid where this is just one pixel away or one texel away. So these are the derivatives. And to calculate those, we actually need to, to shade those uh, pixels that or these fragments that are next to us at the same time. And this is why we shade blocks of two by two fragments always in parallel. And this is called a quad. And this ensures that for every fragment we know at least one fragment now either to the left or to the right and one fragment to the top or below us. And by just calculating the differences between the variables, maybe the texture coordinates, we can figure out the derivatives of any variables inside of our fragment shader and this is needed for the mid-map lookup. But this also means that if we have a triangle which is only rasterized to be one fragment in size and later on maybe just one pixel in size, that we need to create and shade three additional fragments which are called helper pixels or helper fragments which will just be discarded after the shading. They are only created to make sure that we can create those derivatives for this one pixel that we need. And here we can learn another very important thing that very tiny triangles are very inefficient for the fragment shading. And this is something that we can keep in mind when we, for example, want to add tessellation to our shaders, that we shouldn't make the triangles too small and too tiny, otherwise the shading gets too expensive. And after that, our results will get written out to the frame buffer. One more thing that we can learn from the fact that we always shade at least 32 threads in parallel, at least on current hardware. So it might be that in the future these numbers will change and we have 16 or 64, but anyway, we have a lot of threads in parallel. We have our program written with some loops in it and some conditions. So what happens? if not all of those sweats, not all of those vertices, not all of those fragments will take the same path in those conditions. So let's say we have an if-then-else and one of these, let's say, vertices goes into this if part of the shader and the other ones want to execute this else part of the shader. Now I said that there's only one program counter and one logic for this whole block of threads to execute them all. So that means that we kind of have to deactivate those 31 threads for a moment and only execute one of them until this if 
part is done. And then we have to do the other way around. We have to deactivate this one thread and only one the 31 of those for the, this else part. And this means that we basically take up the time of both passes. And the same is true for loops. If some of those threads want to exit the loop earlier than other parts, they have to wait for the one pixel that wants this loop the longest. So here we learn that uh, loops and also conditions can be very expensive inside of a shader. On the other hand, of if all of those threads will go to, uh, to the same part of this condition, maybe because uh, it is controlled by a uniform, which is of course the same for all of the threads, then it's not expensive at all. But if it gets expensive as soon as they disagree on what path they should take. A very nice run through to the pipeline, first of all. I just took one note for me because I guess at the point where you mentioned the, let's say, the memory management of the vertices, you talked about the SIMD or the SIMD machine. I guess you should be so fair to give a short introduction yes. for our listeners about what, what SIMD means on a graphic card. Sure. So SIMD just means single instruction, multiple data. And here it means that we always execute the same instruction for all of our different uh, pieces of data and our different pieces of data. Here are our threads for the vertex fragment shader or the other kinds of shaders. So this means that they are locked together and we don't actually have 32 cores like CPU cores, in, uh, but those are more like ALU lines. So if we compare this, for example, to a CPU, which we might be more familiar with, let's say we have a, an Intel CPU with a SIMD instruction set of, I don't know, 256 uh, bits. This is like the, the AVX instruction set, and I believe the, the newer ones actually have 512, but let's stay at 256 bits. If we want to execute float point numbers on those, which are 32 bit each, that means that we can run um, eight threads of those in parallel. Is that right? Looks right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> eight threads in parallel. And um, if this would be a GPU, we would say that, well, one of those warps would be eight threads in parallel. So eight vertex, vertex shaders, eight fragment shaders. This is something how you could implement um, a rendering pipeline uh, purely software-based to one on a, on a CPU. Then that would be eight instructions in parallel. But here we are even wider with 32 instructions in parallel. So four times wider. And of those, of course, we have multiple of those um, shading processors where on the on the Intel side, for example, in the CPU side or the AMD side, we most likely only have two, four or six of those CPUs. While in the GPU we have, I don't know, 16, 32, this kind of, of numbers. Okay, then um, I guess we really get a, get a 
good overview over the pipeline uh, this time. And um, for those of you who are interested in more information on um, on the on the pipeline itself and on the single steps of the pipeline, I will accomplish again this version of the podcast on the website opengl2go.net and I will place links there to the blog of Mr. Menzel where you can find much deeper and more detailed information on what we have talked about here today on the show. And um, you should just go there, visit the page, take a look at the articles, because if you want to do good OpenGL implementations, I guess it's just mandatory to know about the pipeline and how it's working. Mr. Menzel, thank you for having you on the show today. Thank you for having me. And um, looking forward maybe to another show in the future where we go deeper into single parts of the pipeline in more detail. Um, the further we go on with the podcast, the more we will get into detail. And um, hopefully we'll have another show on a more detailed topic. Thank you for today. Thank you for listening to this podcast and uh, hope to see you next time. Bye. <laughs>